If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 9. Two weeks ago, we were in 8. I appreciate Stan filling in last week for me while I was away, and we're picking back up where we left off. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word before us be our rule. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may Your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're at number nine in our summer psalm series, seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. I think we all know the look. You know, the look that advertisers and marketers tell us that we just have to have. Indeed, every day we are bombarded with voices and images telling us and showing us what to wear, what to eat, what to drive, ultimately what to believe. But the look that I'm talking about is not the clothes that you wear, the restaurant where you dine, or the car that you drive. Now while it's not any of those things, something else indeed is being advertised, being sold, and in many cases being bought. And what is it? It's the look of confidence. It's the self-assured attitude. It's the self-assured look that comes from within you. That's what's being advertised. That's what's being marketed. That's what's being sold. And that's what many, many people, and at times us, of course, are buying especially if we can get it for 40% off. The Bible has something to say about this look of confidence as well. And since the Bible and all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, we don't need to make it practical, we don't need to make it relevant. It is relevant, it is practical. What does the Bible have to say about confidence? Well, why do we need confidence? Because as we, some of us were uh, praying downstairs before the service, because we're in a war, we're in a conflict, we're in a struggle, we're in a battle, and soldiers on the field who have confidence tend to do better. They they stay um, uh, uh, less wounded. And we see that, of course, as we think about Ephesians chapter 6. Because we face an enemy coming from every direction, both out there in the world, but also in here, in us. Confidence is necessary in war, and confidence is necessary in the Christian life. So let's let's think about confidence in God. Look at the title, Learning to be Confident in God. First, As the title says, it is learned. Confidence in God is not easy. It is not automatic. It doesn't come naturally, but rather, as we will see, it comes supernaturally. Not only is it learned, 
Confidence is also a learning process. We will never be fully confident until we see the Lord face to face. We are walking by faith and not by sight. There's still a little bit of unbelief, still a little bit of doubt in all of us. Remember the prayer as we looked at Mark's gospel. I believe, help my unbelief. It's, a, it's not just a learned confidence, it's a learning confidence. It's, I remember uh, in my first year in seminary, I had to write a paper and I was, I was proud of my paper. So proud that I, believe it or not, I emailed it to my spiritual mentor back in Virginia Beach who had served as the team leader of the navigator staff team that I was on. And I was so proud. I said, Wayne, here's my first seminary paper. What do you think? And in so many words, he handed it back to me over the phone and said, F. And I said, you've got to be kidding. And he said, Lee, everywhere you, you've got it in the ED. It should be the ING. You, it's it's the arrogance and the confidence, the overconfidence is so prevalent in your paper that you've arrived, not that you are arriving. I will never forget that. It helped me in the rest of my papers, but more than that, it helped me in my life to recognize that I hadn't arrived, but I was nonetheless on the journey and the Savior was walking with me. Well, Psalm number nine, I believe, shows us and makes known to us this look of confidence in God. From beginning to the end of Psalm 9, David expresses his great confidence in God. His confidence in God is grown and expressed in the midst of real difficulty and real distress. Psalm 9 and 10, some scholars believe, was one psalm. Indeed, in the uh, Greek translation of the uh, Bible, it, it appears as one um, psalm, uh, and there's good reason to believe that's the case. There's a, a Hebrew acrostic that the letters of the Hebrew alphabet kind of line up all the way through Psalms 9 and 10. But in the Hebrew scriptures themselves, it appears as Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. And so we're going to go with it as it um, is presented in our Bibles as one psalm. Psalm 9, I believe, can be seen in two parts. Verses 1 through 12, praising God for his protection, his past deliverance. And then verses 13 through 20, praying to God for his protection, his future deliverance. You've got praying and praising, praising and praying. Now Psalm 9, as I said, is about, I believe, learning to be confident in God. Join with me now as I read Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. 
He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So how do we learn to be confident in God? And how do we keep learning to be confident in God? Well, let's find out. I believe we learn how to be confident in God first by praising God. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, Psalms means a, a praise book. Notice in verses 1 and 2, there is first-person praise God is being celebrated for acting in both judgment and in mercy. And notice it is wholehearted praise. It is over-the-top praise. It is, in a word, fanatical praise. Now, isn't it interesting that in our society, sports, you can be a fanatic. Sadly, at times in politics, there is an over-the-topness to it. But a Christian worshiping and praising God? It should be in many ways over the top. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. You see the word exult often in the scriptures. And I don't think that's very common today that people talk about exulting. It's first-person praise, praise for the gifts, the wonderful deeds. In other words, what God has done, His creation, His rescue, the exodus from Egypt. David is the king. David is the shepherd of Israel. David is a historian. He knows what God has done and he praises Him for that. Praise for the giver. I will be glad and exult in you, not only what God has done, but who God is. David is recognizing that the giver is greater than the gift, as great as the gift is. Praise the name. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. He's giving thanks to the Lord. Not an unknown God, but a personal God. Yahweh, I am the one who 
reveal his covenant name to his covenant people. I will be your God and you will be my people. The Lord. There's intimacy. Our relationship with God cannot be in the abstract. I mean, again, this is King David. King having an intimate relationship with the Lord. Notice how the first half of Psalm 9 ends with a call to praise, a call to worship. We see that in verses 11 and 12. People who praise God go on to call others to praise God as well. In other words, what's good for me is good for you too. And I heard it the other day, and at first I, the expression, you know, we're just one beggar pointing uh, another beggar where to find bread. And you know... Even though that sounds strange, it's really true, isn't it? We're being fed. Don't we want others to be fed as well? That was Israel's calling to be a blessing to the nations. To tell the world and the nations what they themselves had found as God, the Lord, the Creator, had revealed Himself to them. Notice the relationship here between praise and confidence. Someone who's full of praise to God is going to be full of confidence in God. Someone has rightly said shallow praise leads to shallow Christians. Praise in the Psalms as we see before us is an Old Testament anticipation of New Testament evangelism. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we read, beginning in verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Proclaiming the excellencies of God. Proclaiming, praising Him, giving thanks. This anticipation of the worldwide calling of the church to get the word out about Jesus. So we learn how to be confident in God, not only by praising God, but also by praying to God, by particularly bringing our petitions to God. And we see that primarily in verses 13 through 20. Now, if God has promised, why should we pray? That's a great question. And this is not human logic or it's not bare common sense. This is God's revealed logic. God wants us to pray His promises. You pray the promises of God. Now children, help me out. What is prayer? Prayer is praising God, giving thanks for all His blessings, and asking Him for the things He has promised in the Bible. We pray the promises of God. That's God's revealed logic. And David is making that clear as he as we will see. Now what do we learn about prayer, especially petitions from Psalm 9? First, there is a zoom lens prayer. A narrow focus prayer. Look with me at verses 
13 and 14 where David zooms in on his situation. It is a self-focused prayer. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. David is concerned about himself. And my friends, it's okay to pray for your own needs. It's okay. A self-focused prayer here that we see leads to praising God and rejoicing in salvation. And of course, God is pleased when His people give thanks and praise for what He has provided in Christ. But we also learn not only is there a zoom lens of prayer, there's also a wide angle lens of prayer. And we see that in the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, where instead of being zoomed in on his personal affliction, David, as it were, zooms out to the big picture. It's a God-focused prayer for others, the nations. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David is concerned about the nations and he wants the nations to know that God is the Lord and He is the judge. But those who turn from sin and come to Him will find mercy. The psalm ends again with a prayer expressing absolute trust in and dependence upon God. A few weeks ago, I think it may have been in the preparing for worship email, it may have been in the bulletin, it may have been in an email to the men in anticipation of our monthly prayer breakfast, but it was a quote from a book called It Happens After Prayer. And the author, Pastor H.B. Charles, says this, Prayer is an expression of our submission to God and dependence upon Him. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. I guess he's a pretty good writer when he's just writing what's true, isn't he? We neglect to pray about things that we can handle. And here is King David. Remember fighting bears and lions and giants and leading God's people? Here is David acknowledging, I can't do it without you, Lord. Personally and nationally, I, I can't do it without you, Lord. David is demonstrating dependence upon the Lord. And if anything especially the petitionary aspect of prayer, is acknowledging dependence upon the Lord. So we've seen that learning to be confident in God involves praising God and bringing petitions to God through prayer. Well, let's consider an aspect of praise and prayer that's not overt, but sort of covert, not explicit, but implicit in our text. Because I believe the foundation and the fuel for both praise and prayer is seen in pondering God. We learn to be confident in God by pondering God. Now, what does pondering mean? Kids, do you know? We don't use that word too often, but here are a few synonyms. To consider, to contemplate, to deliberate, 
to muse, to think about, to think over, to wonder about, to brood over, to meditate upon, to be lost in thought. What I believe we will see in our text is David has stopped and turned his thoughts to God. He has taken the time to stop, to be still, to know that God is God, to think about Him, to think His thoughts after Him. Because the connection between praising and praying is pondering, pondering God, contemplating God, thinking about, thinking over, fuels both. You praise what you ponder, and you ponder what you praise. You pray what you ponder, and you ponder what you pray. David pauses to ponder, not himself, but God. The majority of the psalm, look at verses 3 through 10, 15 through 18. He is, he is pondering God. He's pondering things personal. Uh, my enemies, my just cause, we see in verses 3 and 4. He's pondering things global when it comes to God. Verses, verse 5, rebuked the nations. Because here the raw material of confidence is the knowledge of God. Now let me ask you all this question and you don't have to answer it out loud. But when the radio is silent, the smartphone is in your pocket, the TV is off, the book is closed, for those of you thinking, hey, I don't do any of that, but I read. Okay, the book is closed. What do you think about? If you don't have anything to think about, what do you think about? Sometimes I'm scared to ask myself that question. How about you? The more we spend time in the Psalms, I think, is a call to think about God. To ponder him and his ways. Well, who is God? Who, what has God revealed about himself in our text? I believe at least three things about who God is. First, God is the administrator of justice. David is thinking about God and he knows that God is the administrator of justice. God administers justice. We see it in verses 3 through 8 and 15 through 18. God is the department of justice. God wields the sword of justice and it has two sides. He judges the wicked and he punishes them and he judges the righteous and he vindicates them. Judgment is making the right decision in a given situation. God is the judge. He judges rightly, appropriately, each and every time. Now in verse 15 where we read about um, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. It's kind of like the story of Haman who builds a gallows for someone else only to be hung on it. This is not just some boomerang effect of sin that even an unbelieving world may say, yeah, what goes around comes around. No, this is God's purpose in judgment. Notice the past tenses of verses 5 and 6, 15 through 17 are 
are, as it were, prophetic perfects. It's a feature in the Old Testament. They describe coming events as if they had already happened. They are so certain of fulfillment, and David's vision is clear. So David sees God as the administrator of justice. We also see that God is a stronghold, a refuge for the oppressed. We see that primarily in verses 9 and 10. God protects. God administers justice. God protects. Look at verse 9 with me. It's an ongoing theme in the Psalms. The Lord is a stronghold. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And then it's followed by what I believe can be seen as the sweetest promise of the Bible. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O God, have not forsaken those who seek you. They know his name. They trust in him. They seek him. They are not forsaken. And again, seek here is not in the sense of looking for something that has been lost but as throughout the Old Testament of coming again and again to the place where something is known to be available. Someone once told me that um, preaching is often reminding people what they already know. Isn't that true? We're so forgetful, aren't we? We've got to be reminded over and over and over again of the promises of God. And this is a sweet promise. Those who seek the Lord will not be forsaken. And knowing the name is not just a matter of mental cognition. It's a complete reliance upon Yahweh, the Lord, the the God who has made Himself known. God administers justice and David ponders that. God is a refuge for the oppressed. He He protects and David ponders that But he also ponders the fact that God is not forgetful. God remembers. Look at verse 10. God has not forsaken. Look at verse 12. He has um, lifted him up. Verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The Lord has not forsaken. He does not forget. The needy shall not always be forgotten. I think one of the things we need to remember is what God remembers. We need to not forget that God remembers. He remembers His people. David is pondering the God of justice, the God of protection, and the God who remembers and does not forget. So confidence in God develops and grows by praise and petition, all being fueled by just pondering God, thinking about Him as He's made known through His Word. Well, let's end where we began by considering once again the look of confidence. Truly, there is a need as we travel in this sinful and fallen world to have the look of confidence. But the look is not so much an attitude as it is an action. You see, confidence 
that pleases God is not found inside of you. Remember, that's what the advertisers are selling. Self-confidence. No, this confidence is found outside of you. It is indeed a look of confidence. We look outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, since Psalm 9 is ultimately about Jesus, remember the words from Isaiah 53 that this servant of the Lord was smitten by God. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was crushed. He was oppressed. He was, for a time, forsaken by God. You remember the promise? Those who seek you will not be forsaken. And you have heard the cry of the afflicted. Because you see, God's Word continues to make very clear that Jesus was forsaken for a time so that all of those who were united to Him by faith would never be forsaken. Hebrews chapter 12, the author speaks of us running a race, doesn't he? And what kind of race are we running? We're running one where we're looking to Jesus. We're looking in confidence to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of our faith. The Christian life is a lifelong journey of learning to be confident in a person and expressing our thanks and gratitude to Him with our whole heart. Indeed, as one hymn writer says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Brothers and sisters, our soul, our very lives, does indeed find rest and confidence in God alone. We find our rest and our trust in Jesus. The Christian has the look of confidence as the Christian looks to Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that all of Your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank You, Father, that indeed Jesus was forsaken in our place and on our behalf so that we would eternally not be forsaken oh father would you give us a growing look of confidence not in ourselves but rather out of ourselves toward jesus father we thank you that we have a faithful and merciful high priest we thank you father for a compassionate savior we thank you father that Jesus came to pick a fight and He came to destroy the works of the devil. 
and set free all of those who through fear of death were, were subject to lifelong slavery. Oh, Father, as we bow our hearts before You, as we humble ourselves before You, may we grow in true Christian confidence as we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for we pray in His name. Amen. Since we have confidence in Him,